we've been in a series walking through Ephesians where we have been looking to discover that our identity is in Christ. And the the identity that we have come to find that we gain from uh, being in Christ is one that is given to us. And then it's further defined by not simply having Christ dwell inside of us to give us a new identity, but it expresses itself in action. And you'll notice this morning that in verse 10, the Apostle Paul starts with the word finally, and this is a paradigm shift. He's saying after all has been said, the first three chapters of Ephesians are are doctrine and theology and describe God and man and God's working with man. And then the next three chapters are what we would call doctrine applied, orthopraxy, or the, the fleshing out. The first three chapters tell me who I am now in Christ as a born-again new creature. I am no longer a slave, and I'm not simply a servant of God. I'm a son or I'm a daughter. And then the next three chapters, four, five, and six, talk about what that looks like. And this morning, we're going to conclude our series by saying, in response to the identity question, who are you? Who am I? That I can reply, I am a fighter. Now, I'm not aggressive on on you know pursuing my own agenda but I'm a fighter in the army of the Lord for the kingdom of God and his purposes what does it do to you even now for me to say that is that a new thought for you this idea of I am a fighter I uh, want you to see that based on this passage where we're going to find that our part of our identity is a fighter for the kingdom, a fighter for God, that this is how uh, Paul wants to frame the church. It's not simply a church family, but it's a church militant. It's a church that has strength. It's a church that has unity and camaraderie that soldiers will have one for another. It's a church that has purpose and mission and directives and communications with its captain, with its general, even Jesus. Do you remember the movie Taken? Now, I know that that's a dated movie. But the movie starts out with Liam Nielsen as a father. His name is Brian. And his daughter is overseas and she's cowering under a bed with her phone and she's called her father and she says I don't know what to do they're in the house and they're going to take me and he begins to explain on the phone that let them don't do violence against them let them take you but I'm going to come after them I'm going to come get you it's going to be all right and she is taken out from under the bed, but the phone is there. And then Liam Nielsen's character senses that someone is listening. And 
this is what he says. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I have acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. He is not only a father, but now his identity has emerged that he's a fighter. And he will fight to regain the freedom of his daughter. And I want you to see this morning that we are called not simply as fathers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters in Christ, but we too are called to live our life with the identity as a fighter, a fighter in God's kingdom, fighting for the Father's kingdom and fighting for one another, even ourselves. I want to show you three things on an outline this morning. Number one, I want you to hear the call of the fight. And this is going to be a fresh invitation for some of you, and for others, it's going to be fresh encouragement that we are in a fight. See the enemy in the fight, secondly. And then lastly, arm for the fight. So in other words, know and recognize that we're in a fight. And then secondly, who are we fighting? That we would clearly identify the enemy. And then lastly, that we would be equipped regarding how serious we now have an enemy, how serious our enemy is about uh, as a threat and wants our downfall, we won't go out unequipped. But we've been divinely equipped, and we'll look at those things in the conclusion this morning. But first of all, I want you to hear the call of the fight. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this in his commentary on Ephesians. He He preached more sermons on Ephesians than he did any other text. Um, And this was one of the things that he had to say about this particular passage, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. It's a stirring call to battle. Do you not hear the bugle and the trumpet? We're being roused. We're being stimulated. We're being set upon our feet. We're told to be men. The whole tone is martial. It is manly. It is strong. Verse 12, there appears to be a little bit of a shift in verse 12 from the the militant, military, soldiering uh, posture to the metaphor of the gymnasium where he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Wrestling is different than line upon line and row upon row of infantry going into battle. It's much more personal. But notice he'll say in verse 12, we. He uses the plural pronoun. So it's not simply an individual fight. It's not simply that I'm fighting for my faith. I'm fighting for my beliefs. I'm fighting in my identity as a Christian. I'm fighting as a son, in my relationship and walk with Jesus. It's not simply a personal fight, 
but it's us. It's two rivers. It's our congregation. That I'm fighting for you. I'm fighting for your faith. I'm fighting for you to be strong. And when a man goes down or when we get shot at, I'm there to help with the wounded. And you're there to help me when I'm wounded. And wounded you shall be. Are you surprised that you're shot at? This last week, we were shot at. There was sniper fire. There was frontal assaults. How did you handle that? I suspect that you didn't handle it very well. You handled it either with self-pity or increased anxiety, maybe even anger. Why is this happening to me? If you look at this life more like a vacation, I came to Christ and I was saved, and now I'm just waiting here for the bus to come, waiting for the bus to come, take me to heaven. It's a war. It's a battlefield. Expect to be shot at. Don't be surprised. If you're surprised, you've been viewing this more like Disneyland. You've been thinking, I didn't really sign up for this. See, I, I like God as a good daddy and a good father. I want him to take care of me. I want him to, to meet my every want. I want him to meet my every need. I want him to be a really good counselor. I want him to heal me of all my diseases. I want a real therapeutic God. I want, I want a God also who's like a great life coach. He can, he can direct me wisely, and, and then he will, he will just show me the way to go that I can do so without error or headache or mistakes, that I never get off the road. Really, things are going very, very well and peacefully and comfortably. Comfort. And then when things began to get really tough, I become increasingly anxious. Why is this happening to me? Maybe I'm not a strong enough Christian. Maybe I'm not a good enough Christian. Maybe that's why God is allowing this to happen. What about life is war? Do you feel like life? Do you feel like you've been fighting life lately? I have. I have. And while it's sobering, it also gives meaning. It puts things in context for me if I view life as a battlefield. And yes, sometimes there's places to rest and safety on the battlefield. But more often as not, the enemy, and we have a very real enemy, he would seek to either shut us down by fear or shut us down by comfort that we're unwilling to sacrifice or just shut us down because we just don't like being shot at. Nobody likes being shot at, but it puts it into meaning and context if we see life as a battlefield. I could explain the whole Bible very briefly. Look, I'm going to go to Deuteronomy 3. And in the first verse and the last verse, I've been in Deuteronomy lately in my private... Uh, Bible study in my quiet times. Deuteronomy 3, verse 1 says, Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan. Now here's what's happening. Moses is still leading Israel, but they've reached the end of the wilderness, and they're once again on the border of the promised land. And now God has said, Moses, this is as far 
as you can take them, but I'm going to let you taste a couple of victories here of taking over the inhabitants who possess the land that I'm giving you in the promised land, and then you're going to turn it over to Joshua. But basically he is saying, you've been in this wilderness period, and now we're once again where we started, you're ready to go into the promised land. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us. He and all of his people to battle at Edri. But the Lord said to me, do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land unto your hand. And then the last verse, and I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these kings, so will the Lord do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. Freedom and restoration, that's the story of the Bible. Two words. I'm not using the word and, I use a hyphen for that. Freedom and the promise of restoration. Our salvation, but our say our salvation to be joined with God as sons and daughters and now to be given purpose and find meaning in that by serving and working and, yes, fighting alongside of King Jesus until he returns or until he calls us home. That's our identity. Freedom, but also restoration. Notice that here in Deuteronomy, there is this king who comes forward. His name is Og, and you can read about him. He's fascinating to Google. He was from the Rephilim. That's where Goliath came from. He's a giant, and he marches out. He's right at the head of his pagan army, and his size along is intimidating. But God speaks to his people's hearts, and he says, don't fear him. I've given him to you. He's a conquered foe already. But you must engage him in battle, but you will win. And when you win, you take back, you take possession of all the land that is mine, that they have been in, but is now yours. That's the story over and over again, Old Testament and now New Testament, that we as Christians find ourselves in, not simply reading about or preaching about or studying or hearing about, but we're in this story. But to be in this story, I've got to see my life as a life, again, not of recreation and vacation and early retirement, but a battlefield. And I'm a soldier on that battlefield until he, my king and captain, returns or until he calls me home. And I want and we want as two rivers to take as much ground as we can to protect one another and also to move God's kingdom purpose and its restoration in this world until he comes back. Before I leave this, you know that your Lord is a fighter, right? You know that Jesus is not only a healer and a teacher. He's not just a wandering rabbi. 
He's not just someone that because of his teachings or his claims, which were true to be son of God, that he was crucified out of weakness. He was a soldier. He was a fighter. G.K. Chesterton says that anybody who picks up the Bible for the first time in the New Testament, when they encounter the life of Jesus Christ, they see a thunderbolt out of heaven, a man on a mission fighting to restore the, the kingdom of God by the freeing of captives and the slaying of his ancient foe enemy, Satan. Exodus chapter 15, verse 3. It's the song of Miriam. It's the song that Israel sang when they finally left, when their captives were freed under the evil dictates of Pharaoh. They sang a song on the other side of the parted waters as they made their way toward the promised land. And in that song, they said, Our Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And he's never stopped. But the fight, he sees our life as a fight. He sees the life that we're in right now as a battlefield. Our foe is defeated. But the work of a soldier is to vanquish him completely. To make him and to force him to leave the field. The mission of your Lord, your fighting captain, was this, to free captives, to release prisoners. Secondly, I want you to see the enemy in the fight. Every story, every good story has a villain. The big bad wolf, the troll under the bridge, the wicked witch of the West, Darth Vader, King Longshanks, Commodus, Magua, that's in the last of the Mohicans. Voldemort, Sauron. You know why every really good story that resonates with you has a villain? Because in your story, you have a villain. Now once again, just like some people are scratching their head and saying, this is a new thought to me, preacher, that life is a battlefield. For some of you, it's going to be a new thought that you have a villainous enemy. But you do. The Apostle Paul here, as he writes, he tells us that we are to, at the end of verse 11, to stand against the schemes of the devil, or as some of your Bibles would have, the wiles of the, the, the devil. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil, and then you go down to verse 16. He'll talk about extinguishing the flaming darts of the evil one. There is one that he says in verse 12 that is not made of flesh and blood. Blood does not course through his or her veins who is your enemy. They don't have corpus. They don't have flesh like you have flesh. Your enemy is not your roommate. Your enemy is not your next-door neighbor. Your enemy is not your wife or your husband. Your enemy is not your employer or employee. Your enemy is not a liberal Democrat or a Republican, rhino, conservative, progressive, moderate. Your enemy is not Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. Your enemy, guess what? Your enemy 
are not the communist. Your enemy is not the Nazis. It's important because I think many times, and I think as Christians, we're identified as people who have an enemy and it's other people or other groups. It's about other issues that we vehemently disagree with, but we focus and put a target on flesh and blood. A part of our work and our soldierly fight is to redeem and to rescue those people that are caught up into those things that are under the enemy because they're captives. They're not the enemy. They're captives. Tim Keller said that things are turned upside down when we become born again and become Christians. That the, the things that used to be conflicts in our life now turn into peace. But the things that used to be peace now turn into conflict. And that's part of the battle. Prior to my becoming a child of God, I used to have very little conflict with a number of wicked improprieties. I felt very peaceful with those things, very peaceful with that lifestyle. My conflict was with God. Don't talk to me about God. Definitely don't pull out a Bible around me and don't mention the name of Jesus. My conflict was with God. I even counted God as my enemy. But then after becoming a Christian, I have no more conflict with God. I have a peace that rules and reigns and a growing faith over unbelief. But now, the things that I used to be at peace with, I'm in conflict with now. And it all comes because I see that those are things that my king and my captain is in conflict with. And that becomes my mission. His enemy then becomes my enemy. Those that are not his enemy but are captives are not my enemy. This is important because we're going to have civil war not only in two rivers but in the church if some of us say the enemy's over here. Some of us say, no, these are the enemies over here. Both of them are flesh and blood. And we then go to this group. You go to that group. We're divided. Satan is saying, I'm neither one of those. But fight it out. Fight out. Kill every one of you. Paul says, we have an enemy. And it's not flesh and blood. It's the devil. What do we know about the devil? The enemy is three things. He's powerful, he's evil, he's cunning. And I, I can't extract this, but I just want to bring it to mind because if you don't know that the enemy, your devil, and that the devil and his demons, and that's what all that business in verse 12 is, cosmic powers over this present darkness and rulers against the authorities. In other words, he's quite organized. He can't read your thoughts, but you're pretty, me too, we're pretty predictable. The devil can't be in all places at one time like Christ and the Holy Spirit can, but his demons are a huge population. So, yes, if you're a visitor this, this morning, welcome. We don't talk a lot about devils and demons, but we do believe that he exists. 
And we want to know the enemy. We want to know who our enemy is. And because we see him as stronger than we are, but not stronger than Jesus, our captain, we respect that power. Now, we don't respect him. He's a slime ball. But we don't underestimate his power. That's why, in just a few moments, it's necessary that we be equipped. If you underestimate the enemy's power, then you're going to face him in your own strength. Again, our identity in Christ tells us in verse 10 and 11 that we're to be strong in the Lord. We're to be strong in His might. He is a powerful enemy, and that power causes me to not underestimate His power, underestimate my power, but then not underestimate Christ's power. I am weak. Christ is strong. He's stronger than my enemy. Secondly, He's evil. And I've already mentioned this, that he's not, he's, though many of his captives will do wicked things, they're not the enemy. But our enemy is murderous. Many of us have created, we want to live in Switzerland. We want to always wave the flag of neutrality. We're just kind of like, you know what? I just, I'm going to come to church, and I'm just going to kind of do my little Christian life, and, and I'm going to have my devotions, but I'm not really going to engage ever. I'm not really going to be out there. I'm going to be kind of a secret agent Christian, and I just want to be left alone. I'm not ever going to go stirring things up. It doesn't matter. The devil doesn't make peace treaties. His demons look at you like food. They just want to eat you up. They want to kill your wife, your husband. Anybody you're in relationship with, they want to destroy that. They want, he is murderer. Jesus Christ said our enemy is two things. He's a murderer and he's a liar. Always has been. He wants to murder. He wants to maim. And the more cruel, the better. Torture, persecution, we don't really face a lot of that in America. We don't really see that much. But we can see our enemy at work, particularly in foreign lands to that degree. And then lastly, he's cunning. And I would just say two things in passing. He is a liar. And he will lie to you. And too many times we fall for it again and again. Right now, he's lying to some by saying, I don't exist. He loves it when we believe that lie because then we will never arm ourselves. We will be completely defenseless whenever he decides to come and to murder or destroy our life and all that we love. He doesn't want us to know. C.S. Lewis has written that there's two lies that the devil loves to propagate. One is that he doesn't exist. He's just a cartoonish myth character. And then the other is, is that he's stronger than he really is. The other cunning that he has is not only does he lie about his existence, but he knows that there's a hole in your heart that until it's completely filled by the gospel, the love of Christ, that you will fall for his accusations and his slander. He will even attack your faith. Your faith and your walk with Jesus, he will say that's not good enough and that's why you're experiencing these things. Or what does it get you to be a Christian? Look, you're a Christian, you've come out of the closet, you're a Christian, you've announced it to your family, and look at all the abuse that they're heaping upon you. God's not a very good God, I would, I would think. 
and he lies to us. He comes to us and he strikes at our heart and he tells us that we're disobedient and we're rebellious, that we're selfish, we're self-seeking, that we lie, we slander others, we're sensual. And we hear all those things and we say, I agree. And he says, well, there you go. Well, we can say we are those things. But the consequence is that it prompts us now to run with that fiery dart landing in our heart to run again to the side of our captain in faith. And that's the shield of faith at work. That's raising faith to say, you know what? God's love for me is not simply when I'm obedient or when I'm strong. God's love for me He is tender to those that are wounded by the lies of the enemy. So lastly, we arm for the fight. Uh, There's a lot this weekend, starting yesterday. You're going to hear a lot on the news. You're going to hear a lot. You're going to read a lot in the paper about who the greatest fighter to ever live was. Upon the death of Muhammad Ali, there's a lot of buzz about Was he the greatest fighter ever? And so far, it's running about 10 to 1 that people are saying that he was the greatest fighter ever. Paul is making the case to tell you that the greatest fighter ever is Jesus Christ. It wasn't weakness that took his life. It was strength. It was our captain throwing himself where the fight was the most fierce, throwing himself in the breach so that our lives could be saved and even the battle completely be won. Thank God he came back from the dead and he's still fighting now, still releasing captives and asking us to join along with him. In Isaiah 59, we find that he was the one that wore the armor first because this armor and this equipment for the battle was forged as it was in heaven. Our founder, Jesus Christ, has crafted this armor that he himself has worn. And it's as much about the divine gift of equipping us as it is the exercise of the equipment and the armor. Isaiah 59, He, that is the Lord, saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Imagine a very pitched battle. And Christ is looking, he's saying, what man will stand up for my people? And there's nobody. Then his own arm brought him salvation. In other words, he said, I will bring about the salvation of my kingdom by myself. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Guys, it's important for you to understand. I am not in any way wanting to end this morning's message and sermon by saying, be strong, be a fighter, go out and get them in your own strength. I don't want to leave the impression, I don't want to encourage you to be stronger, be more faithful. Be more, I want to encourage you to see that that's not the fight. The fight 
is to stand with Jesus. The fight is to not leave Jesus. The fight is to keep your eyes on your captain. The fight is not to keep your eyes on the enemy. The fight is not to, to keep your eyes on your own equipment. How am I doing? How, how is my faith? How is my prayer life? How is my Bible reading? How is my worship? How is If you solely look at your faith and its practice, you're bound to be discouraged. Because this week, even my own. But when I look at my captain, he has not abandoned me. And he makes me stronger. I find that the fight is staying with him and not leaving his side. The fight is to keep my eyes on him when the battle is the most fierce. The fight is to not simply look at, am I completed in, in wearing all this armor, but look at him that is already shining in this armor and has won the fight. That gives me courage and it gives me motivation. But I can't leave this text with the last message without focusing on the equipment that we have. But bear in mind, even as I started, to say that life is a fight for God's kingdom, that we are engaged in the great Bible story. It's our story to fight for freedom and restoration, even of other captives, even ourselves. But the armor that we wear, we wear together. And so there are times that I need to help you armor up. I need to help you get your armor on. There are times that you need to help me in my armor. But we're fighting not one another. We're not shooting our own wounded, and we're not seeing each other's enemy, but we're fighting alongside of one another, alongside the one we identify with, the fighter of all fighters, Jesus Christ. But let me be very practical in conclusion and look at these six articles of weaponry, these six items of our armament and our dress. And these speak to our identity. First of all, the belt. The belt represents integrity or reality. And it's reality that holds my identity together. We've said all along through this series that we're not what other people think that we are. We're what Christ says that we are. We don't take, we are not, my life is not defined even by the things that I do, such as I'm a preacher. My life is defined by my identity as a Christian. I am, my identity is in Christ, and I do preach. And so that's my reality, and it binds everything together. This would have been like a, a, a belt that would have just kind of hold my garments together. And so what is your true identity? Are you walking in truth? Are you real or are you plastic? Are you authentic? Are you what other people, what you want them to think? Are do you take a real sense of assurance? I mean, I can't, I can't leave the house without a belt on. Uh, I even like those old swimsuits that had fake belts on them. Um, it just gives me comfort. But do you take that kind of cinch down together? I, I am, even though my life can be under attack or falling apart, I, my identity is intact and it's real. My identity is in Christ. Secondly, a breastplate. Um, I'm not really a big fan of all the superhero movies, 
So you don't hear a lot of illustrations. I'm more geeky. I like Lord of the Rings sort of stuff. But I made this observation um, about superheroes. They always have the coolest breastplate. And the reason it's so cool is it has like six-pack abs or 12-pack. And I thought, you know, that would be so cool over my flab, you know. I mean, just, you know, just you look at me and you always say, wow, man, nice set of abs. Yeah, I, you know, those are real. That's not just my breastplate look, you know. They always have these defined abs on the breastplate. In other words, the breastplate, the front plate, it protects your vital organs, but it can look rather busty. It can look rather, you know, fearsome. What's the point? Again, my core identity is right with God. I struggle. The Satan, the enemy, the way that this works against him is when he comes and says, who are you kidding? Who are you trying to fool, Sergeant? You really, you really think that you're, you're a preacher? You really think that you're worthy to get up after the week that you've had, the dalliances that you've had with sin, that you're worthy to get up here and preach? You really think so? And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty flabby inside. But guess what? My breastplate, this breastplate came hand-forged from Jesus Christ. This is who he says I am. He says I got six-pack abs, whether I look like it or not. He says I'm righteous, whether I look like it or not. He says that I'm clean, I'm forgiven from past, present, and future, whether I believe it or not. He says it. That's law. That's identity. Bing! Uh, shoes. We don't do evangelism uh, enough at Two Rivers. And I'm conflicted because I don't want to do, really, I don't want to do like an evangelism night. I don't want to do an evangelism course because I think that for those of us that really have had our heart penetrated with the beauty of the gospel, that I am a vile, captive sinner who has actually collaborated with the enemy against God's people, that that one, the captain of the righteous, died in order to win my freedom. And at the more I love that about my captain, it should show in conversations all around. It should show that my whole life, with shoes or walking forward, my whole life is filled with conversations about the one that I love most and who loves me now more than any flesh and blood person can ever love me. So that evangelism really becomes an overflow. Are you over here? So the two rivers really looks like the people that are in love. And it's clearly identified who we love. Shield. There's a, a lot of the commentaries go into great detail about how these were very special shields and that fiery darts, fiery missiles, that once they struck them, that they could be uh, extinguished. I just want to tell you that this is where we experience the most in our day-to-day, week-to-week existence as long as time remains. There's a whole plethora of darts in our enemies, um, his, his, whatever you call it, quiver. And these darts can be things like false guilt, doubt, disobedience, fear, 
You can add to that pride, lust, slander, all the sins. But these, these things, these are the things that he would use to try to take us out. And now we know. How do we combat those things? As I mentioned earlier, by faith. That as I take one look at that dart, as I take one look, as that dart has now is trying to burn me down, my sin is, I'll look at my captain and I'll say, but I believe in you and I believe in the forgiveness of my sins. And I believe that I believe in the resurrection of the righteous and that I'll live with you forever. I believe in you. That's what repentance is all about. Helmet. I found this very interesting. Now, a lot of commentators went into great detail about the helmet. About, you know, was it a battle helmet? Was it a, was it a special type of helmet for infantry? Or was it more of a, a, a helmet that identified you as a general or an officer? But the thing that I found it's interesting to me was that, by and large, the helmet that Paul is talking about here is more decorative than it is practical. In other words, you looked at this soldier, and it tells us here that Paul was cuffed at the wrist in chains. But he wasn't, he was fighting, probably he was fighting his best fight being chained to a soldier. And maybe he's looking at his soldier, and he's doing an assessment, and he's kind of spurred on to say, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, I may be in prison, but I'm a fighter. In fact, this is, this is the battleground. I'm not surprised. And I'm not full of self-pity. And I'm not resigned to quit. I'm going to fight on here. Because you can't see it, but I'm wearing a helmet too. You're just a soldier working for the man. My helmet is my salvation. It's my sonship. It marks me out as a son and a daughter of God. And then lastly, the only offensive weapon that is given is the sword. And the sword is short for up-close encounters because this was not a sword. This was a, a small personal sword, a, a, more like a, a dagger. And so when Paul uses the word there, wrestle, he's saying, you know, this it's like a, a wrestling match. You know, it's close, it's up-close, it's hand-to-hand. It's, it's fierce. You can get hurt and wounded and bloodied and dirty. And yet you've got it, and it can be very, very exhausting, but you endure. And now he says you've got a sword for that up-close personal work as well. It's not simply to keep him at arm's length, but it's, it's going to be close. It's going to be very personal. Let me tell you what it looks like. If, if, you're, if you're in a battle and you go to the opposing force and they're, you're fighting each other with swords, if you can get your opponent to drop his sword, then he will surrender. If he surrenders and says, okay, I'm giving up, and you're saying, all right, well, drop your sword. Put your sword down. All right, put your sword down. I surrender are in battles such as the end of the Civil War. Robert, uh, General Robert E. Lee, he presents his sword as a sign of surrender. And they took the sword. Where have you given up your sword? Do you have regular 
place of worship? Are you faithful on Sundays to sit under the teaching of God's word? The sword is God's word. If not, you've surrendered. Do you have time in the course of your week set aside where God's word is open before you for you to learn of your, of your God and for him to speak and to communicate to you on the battlefield? You're his soldier. How do you know what your mission is? How do you know what your marching orders are unless he's able to communicate that to you? And how does he communicate? He communicates it through the medium of the Holy Spirit through his word. We don't worship the Bible, but we worship the God of the Bible because the Bible is out of his own words that he speaks to us. If you don't have that time, you've surrendered your sword. How about your life outside of Sunday morning or outside of your community group? Are you known as a Christian who follows and who submits as a soldier, as a fighter to God Or do you follow your own words? Or do you follow whatever ethic is in the workplace or with your friends contemporary right now? If not, you've surrendered your sword, the sword that he has given to you to do life on the battlefield. You've surrendered. Praise God. Praise God because he's the one that armors us. Praise God because he doesn't come to us and say, we've surrendered your sword, we've surrendered to the enemy, you're out. He comes to us and he says, take up your sword again. Get very close. Draw near to me. Let's fight alongside of one another. I, uh, I have a little, it's not lead, it's metal. I have a little soldier. It's just a little token that I carry around with me. And I, I use this to pray. Now again, it's just a little piece of metal. It's just a pomp to me. But it's a soldier. Because I see that I am doing my best fighting when I pray. I mean, you look through the scripture. I mean, you're, you're like, okay, I see, the, I see the battlefield, I see the enemy, I see the armor, but where's the fight? Four times he says, all right, see the battlefield, stand. See the enemy, stand firm. Get armed and stand. And then at the very end of this passage, he says, pray. Pray at all times and all manners. Pray for all people. He doesn't say some, he says all. And in that, we do battle against our true enemy. When we pray for his failure, we pray for his downfall, we pray for people that are his captives, we pray for their release, and we pray for their restoration. I've been much in prayer about a number of things. And it does, it does one's heart great good when we see victories when despite anything that could have been done in the flesh, a battle is won over here. A life is changed. An issue is resolved. And that's for the good of God's people and the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ. So I would encourage you today, and I want you to be encouraged to know that your faith, your faith 
is existing on a battlefield. So don't be surprised when you get shot at that you're not alone. When we're shot at, those things, they drive us to once again to see our captain and to make sure that we're aligned with him. And when we're weak, we can ask for him to be to strengthen us because we're not strong in our own strength. We're strong in his. And we say, oh, captain, by your bravery, by your stand, help me to stand. Now help me to stand alongside of you in the fight of this life. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would set aside this table and that this would be a warrior's table. This is, this is not a picnic. This is a warrior's feast. We came in from the fight a little while ago, and we're going back into the fight. We need to be strengthened. There's only one thing that can strengthen us. I'm not a strong person. I'm, I'm not strong in my faith by myself. Jesus. Jesus, if I am sure that you are with me, if I'm sure that you're inside of me, I can stand because I'm not fighting alone. And I'm fighting alongside of the church as well. Lord Jesus, would this table use it to give us more of yourself inside. That we literally are taking you inside. And once again, we're identifying ourselves with you and your cause and the fight for your glory. So strengthen us from this table, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.